Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. On each episode, we talk with biographers about their work. This time, bio member Jack Farrell talks with Thomas Hertog about his book, On the Origin of Time, Stephen Hawking's Final Theory, published by Penguin Random House in April 2023. This interview was recorded on August 24, 2023, via Zoom. Hello, Thomas, and welcome to the Bio Podcast. Hello, nice to be here. It's not a science podcast, nor is your book, On the Origin of Time, uh, a standard biography. It is, however, I think, a great example of how to write about an incredibly complex subject matter for a general audience. And the bio podcast is aimed at experienced writers, fledgling writers, all writers grappling with that kind of challenge. Uh-huh. But your book is built around biographical elements, the always incredible and fascinating story of Professor Hawking. To start at the beginning, no pun intended, if you could give us a brief account of who you are and how you landed in Hawking's laboratory and how that work progressed. Okay, so just some background. Say. Um, I met Hawking as a young physics student in Cambridge. He had this very simple strategy of recruiting doctoral students based on the grades of the Master of Mathematics, the famous Part Three Master of Mathematics. And so whoever came top would be invited for an interview with Stephen, and that's what happened with me. So this was 97. By then, Stephen had already lost his voice, so he was speaking through a computer voice, which at the time he could uh, use fairly fluently, frankly. He was manipulating a mouse in his hand and he would pipe out sentences uh, after sentences. And so, of course, it was a strange period because if I would have met Hawking in the 80s, I would not have been able to understand him. His voice was only understandable for a few people very close to him, native speakers. So in the 90s, of course, he was already famous. He had published Brief History of Time. But the 90s, very, very special time in cosmology with lots of new observations that were challenging the theories that Stephen and others had developed in the 80s. And so Hawking in the late 90s had one foot firmly into research again, specifically on the Big Bang, and another foot in, yeah, stimulation of the the broader scientific culture and communication and and this and that. So that was the context, late 90s. And somehow what happened is that we found ourselves on the same scientific wavelength and our collaboration continued and evolved from a mentorship into a genuine scientific collaboration that lasted till he died 20 years later. So I call this in my book, The Late Hawking, where, yes, you have an early Hawking who had almost a different philosophy of physics and a late Hawking who changed his mind on sort of rather fundamental stuff. And that has not gotten a lot of attention. I would say that the average person still thinks that there was no late Hawking. There was just one. That's right. Hawking. Searching for the mind of God. Yeah. I think it. This coinage of early and late Hawking had never been done before. 
and I think it touches on something which which interests your you and and, and your audience, in the sense that I would regard it as as sort of the biographical contribution that I was able to bring to the table, because you could not have described that you could not have made that distinction without knowing all of his signs. It would have been very difficult to extract this sort of almost ontological readjustment as to what cosmology and physics are ultimately about, based on Stephen's own writings, because he was writing himself so little in these last years. And so you see, my book is not a biography. In fact, someone else is writing a biography on Hawking, and it must be a terribly complicated job to do the whole thing. But on the other hand, it's a crucial piece to understand the span of his career. And I sort of also believe that if you want to understand Stephen as a person, you've got to understand at least the broad sort of arc of his scientific work. And so that's sort of how I see the role of my book from well, a biographical viewpoint. It required several incredible talents, one of which is to be, as you were, a contributor to the physics, just to be a, a smart guy. The second to be someone who could then translate that into a book intended for a popular audience. And the third, I think, is that there must be a lot of brilliant people who don't have the empathy or the human skills, the patience and the care to work with a disabled person like Hawking. So we are very lucky that you happen to be the person who walked into the laboratory that day. Well, thank you. And... It did work out great. Yes, yes. Uh, also, Stephen would not have been able to continue without sort of this encounter in his later years. Yeah, this is how life goes, right? It's a strange encounter, which then... What do you call it? Frozen accident? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's a, it's a frozen accident, which was particularly important for me. Yes. I mean, this book was not an easy project. No, no. Um, it's been rewritten many times by me, and then, and it's because a little bit what you mentioned, there are different strands coming together. The goal, sort of, the homework that Hawking gave me shortly before he died, was: look, we we have this new vision, this sort of Darwinian vision of the earliest stages of the universe. It's time for a new book. I can't write it. You should write it. So there was this dream of writing a popular book which nevertheless contained the kernel of a genuinely new scientific hypothesis. So it's almost like what Darwin did, right? Darwin wrote on the origin of species. It was a new theory, but it's beautifully written for everyone there to read. And of course, it's much less of a tradition in physics, uh, certainly now, but I thought it was a wonderful opportunity precisely because the broader implications of our hypothesis go so far and are so human and, and general. But I didn't want to write an egocentric book either. So I wanted to frame, precisely because these consequences are so broad, I wanted to frame this new hypothesis in the historical context. So I wanted to sort of open, have that strand very visible as well. And then the third strand is the biographical side, and the personal collaboration, and so all, all that angle. So these three things had to be combined. And I noticed very clearly during the writing that if the balance was off, it sort of fell apart into three distinct 
too much disconnected sort of fragmentary pieces. But if the balance between the three strands was right, it works beautifully. Because of course, the personal side, the biographical side, nurtures the signs and vice versa and sort of they begin to interact and it just makes for I think I mean that's what I hear from readers it just makes for pleasant reading as well and it gives this unique touch in the sense that and this is this is what you were getting at earlier there is this interplay between the biographical elements and the science Um, there's a famous biography of Einstein where this is the case as well and that is, of course, if you want to understand a giant scientist like Hawking, it's a very valuable thing, I think. What is it about Hawking's physical condition that may have led him towards this particular theory? Or was his personal struggle not part of this? Okay, that's the biggest question of all, right? <laughs> it's um, two things. There is a phase, late 70s, early 80s, when Stephen wrote down his last equation by hand, right? He could not write uh, probably from 1981 onwards. At that point, he was so much at the pinnacle of his scientific uh, talent, his scientific work, and so passionate about it, that he was able to sort of, to some extent, develop a new language of physics a language which he could more easily visualize, a way of thinking about theoretical physics, which he could more easily visualize in his head. So he developed, if you wish, the style of doing theoretical physics, which was a tad more intuitive than sort of the strict logical mathematical equations, calculations, and this and that. So intuition became a little more prominent, so to speak, in Hawking's work. Of course, Other colleagues thought this was outrageous. He was permitting himself stuff which sometimes was very hard to reproduce with equations. And the reason this worked was, of course, Stephen was was brilliant, but also he had gained a lot of experience working with equations for 20 years. And so he had this intuition was not some otherworldly thing or he's this lone genius no, this intuition was had been built over the years. And somehow he had the talent, the creativity to sort of take this further into sort of some sort of a more intuitive way. And so in the early 80s, he developed that idea of a Big Bang, his, his famous no-boundary hypothesis in which time becomes space. And it was all very visual. It was very weird for someone working with equations. It was almost a new kind of physics. And he was able to, to, to push this further. So... That is connected to his condition because, of course, we don't know what would have happened otherwise. But in any case, his condition at that point stimulated him to develop this new style of doing theoretical physics further. And that led to insights, which at the time were almost impossible to reproduce in any other way. Later, of course, the whole thing became much more embedded in in mainstream physics. More generally, I'm not sure. I mean, even if you go back to the 60s. So there's this thing that Stephen, of course, was one of these rare physicists who was motivated by these big human questions. Ultimately, where do we come from? And somehow he felt, you can't prove this, but 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 I explain this in my book, he felt that we must understand this at the most fundamental level 
that this is going to be important somehow for humanity, for the future, to grasp, to grasp this as deeply as we can. Now, you might say, does this have something to do with, with his condition? I'm not so sure, because if even if you go back to the earliest scientific work of Hawking in 65, 66, even there, I find traces of that same sort of deeply human motivation. So I think this is just who he was. So the book is about 300 pages. So take a deep breath and tell the listeners to the podcast what the final quest was. Try to distill your solution, even though I know it's probably an impossible question to ask, but you've probably done a lot of interviews, so maybe you have a, a practiced answer. But <laughs> what, was, what was the quest and what was the final solution? So there's this observation that the universe around us, down at the level of the physical laws, is remarkably, in some sense, biophilic. It seems to be almost fine-tuned for life to emerge. And the origin of that fine-tuning or the explanation, or any kind of explanation, you have, to, you have to look back to the Big Bang. That's where the laws of physics came about somehow. But this connection between our existence on the one hand, within the universe, and the laws of physics, what do the laws of physics have to do with us? In standard physics and cosmology, nothing. Absolutely nothing. The laws are what they are. They are platonic, absolute, objective truths, and we happen to be here. And so this was an awkward state of affairs. I mean, Stephen was probably one of the first ones in, uh, to realize that there must be something we are not understanding here. And in order to sort of make progress, we have to get a better control. We have to understand the Big Bang. At the time, multiverse theories were popular. The anthropic principle was popular. Uh, a theory of everything was popular. All sorts of explanations have been given for this apparent design of our universe. And none of them seemed to work very well. A theory of everything didn't seem to predict our universe. Uh, and a multiverse became uh, such a quagmire that you, that you got lost or you can't predict anything. And so somehow Stephen felt there had to be a different approach. We worked on it for years and years and years. And the crux of our final hypothesis, and that's the reason why my book is called On the Origin of Time, it's a variation of Darwin's title, of course, the crux is that deep down in these earliest stages of evolution of the universe, the laws of physics themselves co-evolve with the young universe taking shape. And the crucial difference between this and anything else is that if you go back in time, what's happening is that, in a sense, the laws of physics morph, simplify, and in the end, disappear at the Big Bang. So instead of this old idea that we have laws of physics transcending the universe, like, like some sort of absolute truth that dictates how and why it should be the way it is, we have arrived at a fundamentally evolutionary understanding, even of physics. And that's the crux. That's what it is. It provides a new vision on the earliest stages of the universe, which we can develop theoretically, hope to test observationally, and it provides this slight ontological readjustment. Um, in the end, it seems to be the Big Bang almost becomes an epistemic horizon, and surely the last word on that has not been said. How has the theory been received by the scientific community? Yeah, so this is a difference, right? 
within our community, this has been building up for 20 years. Yeah. We've talked about this many, many times in all sorts of different conferences and papers. Yeah, this is something that I've been surprised by. This book towards the broader public comes a little bit of as a, as a, as a shock, as a breakthrough, but it's been in the makings, yeah, more than 20 years, right? And so it's by now the whole idea, the, the sharpest implementation of our ideas uses what we call holography. It's a new way for Einstein's theory and quantum theory to work together in which time is emergent and all that. That's a field on its own. That's the point where you lost me. <laughs> that's tough, yeah, that's yeah. tough for the average person. No, I meant to lose you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm just, I meant to lose you, but I'm just telling that because that's a field of its own. I didn't mean it's a failure as a writer. I just meant that that concept, this particular right, brain was perfect. Right, for me right, right. I, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Good, good, good. Okay, so now you're, you're staring at a keyboard. And I don't know if you remember, but here in the States, we have many of these books called Plumbing for Dummies chess for dummies and they were basic instructional models they were always soft back and they were always yellow and white and yeah, yeah, you're yeah, actually yeah. sitting down you're writing cosmology for dummies at one level you're writing for people like me who do not have a scientific background did you begin with an outline did you sort of sit down and just go with the flow did you have an editor who repeatedly read drafts or a spouse or um, for someone who's listening to this who is a writer what was the process of taking an incredibly complex story and what mechanical steps did you take to make it more accessible? Okay, so you have to know that this is my first book and so I probably made all possible mistakes that writers make, right? So this is what I'm going to say. is certainly going to be bad advice to anyone listening. But anyway, <laughs> you asked me the question, so I'm going to answer. I was my own editor. I mean, I had an editor in at, at Random House, but she gave me time, which was very important, and a few crucial inputs, but nothing in terms of detailed editing. I had this key idea of getting that Darwinian revolution in cosmology out there, and it had to include, Stephen told me just before he died, this idea of holography where I lost you. So there were a few principles. I also had a very strong feeling, which I then developed in, in uh, studied in, uh, in, in the process of writing my book, that there was a connection between the vision of cosmology we arrived at and some early speculations by a priest astronomer called Georges Lemaitre. And so I certainly wanted to make that arc from Lemaitre in the 1930s over John Wheeler in Princeton to the later Hawking, because the early Hawking was much more like an Einstein. So I had a few of these things. Lemaitre, by the way, for the listener, emerges as a spectacular secondary character in this book. And it makes me want to now go read a biography of Lemaitre. He seems to have all of the, the human qualities and the genius that Hawking had. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. That's my take. Yeah, yeah. Le Lemaitre is a very, very interesting character. Um, and his attempt for religion and science to coexist motivated him to sort of look carefully at the, at the frontiers, at the boundaries of both these spheres, which came in handy, of course, when thinking about the Big Bang. But maybe a key point was that because Stephen and all these conversations I had with him, especially in the evening, his ground motivation was so human, so general, so like, wait, what is this biophilic universe trying to tell us? 
it sort of gave me an idea like, look, I'm going to tell this story of our collaboration and the whole scientific journey that we that, that, that we travel together. I'm going to tell this from the perspective, not of our daily activities, which were trying to come up with theories and formula and equations and this and that, but from our evening discussions, which were much more sort of general and philosophical in nature. So I sort of wanted to put the bigger question central and leave the math uh, out. So kind of the reverse of what we do in scientific papers. And that eventually worked. Dummies like me that you tried paragraphs or chapters out on, and then they report back to you what they think that meant. And then you realize that you've either been successful or not. Or is that the function of your editor at that uh, random? Yes. But eventually I had the stamina and the patience to rewrite my draft several times. And I realized along the way, by the third or the fourth draft, say, this works. It just, it, it felt right at some point. And, and, and my editor com- confirmed that. Did you look to other people like Carl Sagan or Stephen's own, own books that sort of make that leap from technical to popular for inspiration? Not so much for, for the writing and the, the style. I wanted to develop my own style, but uh, certainly for, yeah, the broader historical context. I looked at Stephen's old books because, yeah, I mean, I, I better not be inconsistent with those, right? <laughs> um, Paul Davies eh, has, has also written about sort of these big questions and a few uh, works that have been written on Einstein and Lemaitre and all that. To some extent, yeah, you bring together a lot of material and that is the springboard for the new vision that emerges from our work. So it's sort of a mixture between existing works and new and, and, and new input and combinations. Uh, I think this is obvious, right? In the first phase of writing, you rely on quite a few other works, but then in the later stages of the writing, it's just you. In fact, I couldn't see any other book uh, in the later stages of writing, which is kind of a nice, uh, nice thing, nice yeah. experience. I really felt, certainly in the later stages, when the whole thing clicked, when the three strands came together, when the hypothesis was clear, it was a very different kind of activity from writing a scientific publication or from doing research. But I'm sure many other writers have it as well. When it clicks, when you're really into it, you do have the feeling, just like in technical research, that you are literally working with the world, working with the universe. It's You're literally creating something. And I didn't expect this. I, I mean, naive, I mean, yeah, as a scientist, what do you think? You think you've got to write, you've got to formulate, do, do research and find a new theory and all that. But no, there is some genuinely creative aspect in the writing for the broader public on scientific. One place that you were particularly successful was using analogy. Um, and I'm just going to read a couple of here. It became apparent that the universe's bio-friendly barcode might not have been inscribed into its basic architecture right at the start, you write. Or the multiverse is like an Ikea closet without a manual. Mm. Or the story of the world need not to have written down in the first quantum like the song on a disc of a phonograph. Is this something unique to you? Or is this something that you saw in other people's writings and said, boy, you know, analogy is a great way to do it that my readers can uh, relate Uh to. uh Yeah. The style of using analogy. Is that something that scientists use? Oh, you try, you try, but it's it's um, 
you 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 need it you need it uh, to for readers to relax once in a while right uh for thing yeah in fact i think the best analogy is already the, the ikea closet i like too because it brings the whole thing so much down to earth uh i think those were the best ones yeah are the best ones yeah uh, i also yeah. I, I thought it was particularly effective in making this somewhat less theoretic in the paragraph when you talk about there are rocks in the Grand Canyon that are X billion years old, and that gets us halfway back to right. Oh, this is not quite so far away as you think, reader. Yeah. Yes, I was happy with that too. Yes, 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 yes. Is there anything in your theory that you developed with Hawking that should make us more comfortable with the idea of death? Well, even the laws of physics are not eternal. Nothing is eternal. You might say, what has the last word here? And it's the idea of change and not the idea of some sort of ultimate explanation. So it seems to me that this is a bit of a stretch, perhaps, but it seems to me that this is some sort of message from, from the depths of physics that there's a finitude to, to everything. And it's I, I wonder, I mean, of course, this takes us far, far beyond science and cosmology. But in my wildest dreams... This can be the seat of, of, of another way of thinking about the world, about a new worldview. In the final chapter, you talk about bioengineering and artificial intelligence. You had a wonderful phrase. We are taking our first steps in nature's shoes. It is going to be a radical change and sort of the humanity's ability to manipulate reality through observation is now going to become even more definite in that we're going to be possibly taking our DNA and sending it places it's yeah. never been or marrying it with computer sciences. This week's newspapers had stories about women who now have brain chips and are able to talk in a way that reminded me very much of the way Hawking talked because the brain chip translates what's going on in their brain and puts it on a, on right. a screen. Are we at a big moment here? Have we you know, run the table on our ability to command our accomplishments? And are we venturing into dangerous territory i'm afraid we are yes we are our capacity to to deal with the technological developments um the technological developments have outrun our wisdom to deal with them and so it is more important than ever to forge a scientific practice and a worldview that emerges from this in which science and technology are ultimately rooted in, in our human condition. That's the crux of that final chapter, so that they deepen our humanity and not destroy it. I see this link that we establish in this cosmology between our existence on the one hand and our theories on the other hand. In some sense, we have put us back into the equations. And I somehow hope that this could be the seed ultimately for a new understanding of what science should ultimately be about. It remains a human practice. And even the laws of physics are not completely disconnected from this. It's very, very interesting. But as you say, I mean, this is, of course, a message from cosmology, from the depth of physics. It's miles away from the problems that you mentioned and the applications. But still, it's an arc. It's, it's a whole thing. Congratulations. It's really quite an achievement. Cool. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. That was bio member Jack Farrell in conversation with Thomas Hertog about his book, On the Origin of Time, Stephen Hawking's Final Theory. It was published by Penguin Random House in April 2023. 
This interview was recorded via Zoom on August 24th, 2023. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. Alani Hodge created our theme music, and until next time, thanks so much for listening. Have a great week.